Lisa Mattress Company, the best bed on the planet is also affordably priced, less than half the cost of the Tempur-Pedic that I now have sitting in my guest room. It is absolutely incredible. These guys are an innovative direct-to-consumer online mattress brand that is also socially conscious. What the hell does that mean? Well, that means direct-to-consumer means you're paying less. They're bringing it straight to your door. It shows up in a box. The frame is incredibly easy to assemble without tools, uh, without a two-person or three-person job. And you just unfold this mattress, cut it out of its bag, and voila, it goes and elevates into the best mattress I've ever slept on. They're driven by a mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody. That means Lisa donates one mattress to a shelter for every 10 that they sell through their 110 program with over 22,000 mattresses donated so far. Lisa also plants one tree for every mattress sold and donates 1% of each employer's time to volunteer for local causes. Get them online, lisamattress.com. It's uh, incredibly easy to order. You can try the mattress in your home for 100 nights risk-free with free shipping always. It's American-made. It's just an amazing, amazing mattress. They have many different forms. They have uh, full memory foam. If that's what you're into, that's the one that I sleep on. If you like spring with a with a memory foam topper, they do that as well. Maybe you're not 100% sold on the memory foam game. They've got a little bit of something for everyone. Lisa is continuing to expand its offerings to include the Lisa pillow, blanket, sheets, foundation, and frame, all available online with free shipping. If you go to lisa.com forward slash on it, you'll receive the deepest discount they've ever done of $160 off. I can't recommend this mattress enough. We even got a twin that we stuck in the living room we're using as a couch with uh, uh, another twin next to it. And it's just, it's absolutely phenomenal. It's the best thing that I've ever incorporated. We know sleep is incredibly important, biohack when it comes to recovery, memory consolidation, fat loss, you name it. It's the most important thing we do. So why sleep on a shitty mattress? Don't miss the summer savings. Get $160 off at lisa.com slash on it. Dry Farm Wines is the best form of alcohol on the planet. They carry the best form of wine, organically and biodynamically farmed. That means there's no use of pesticides, herbicides, or chemical sprays in any shape or fashion. It's the most sustainable and biodiverse land on the planet. These guys seek out very small farms in Europe and South Africa that produce the best wine available. That means it's higher in polyphenols, higher in antioxidants, resveratrol, things that we hear about as plug words that we know are healthy for our bodies. And really they're in very trace amounts in most wines that we buy here in the US. But we can have this amazing form of wine that is also ketogenic, very low carbohydrate. I think one gram of carbohydrate per bottle, which is absurd when you think about that, incredibly low. Uh, in addition to that, they, they cap the alcohol because I want to drink more than just a glass, you know. And one thing I found with this wine, with the fact that it's capped at 12.5% alcohol, is the fact that I can drink more, I can have a buzz, I can feel good, and the next day I don't have to pay for that. I don't feel like shit the next day. Uh, pretty much no hangovers. In any of my experiences, obviously there's an upper limit to that. I'm sure I could achieve a hangover if I really pushed the envelope, but um it's an amazing way to get your party on, to have a good time, and to do something that's healthy for your body where you have very little to no consequences from those actions. Uh, they're an incredibly good company. We've had Todd, Todd White on the show, who's the CEO of Dry Farm Wines. I recommend people give it a listen. 
but it's an absolute fantastic product that I highly recommend. Go to dryfarmwines.com forward slash on it and you'll receive an extra bottle of wine of your choosing for a penny. Our guest for today is Max Lugavir. Max is the author of Genius Foods. Now, I read a lot of books. Uh, I enjoy reading a lot of books and I read a lot of books on diet, but it's very few and far between when a book comes along that not only engages me, but brings a lot of new stuff to the table and really ties things together in a way that is manageable and usable. And Max has done that in Genius Foods. We dive into his book. We dive into his story, what made him want to learn about health and wellness and why is it so important to him? And I think as with most people in the health and wellness field, there's usually some form of crisis that leads us to want to know more. And I think Max's story is incredible. I know you guys are going to dig this one just as I did. Check it out. On a podcast, Max Lugavere in the house, Genius Foods. Let's jump right in. Let's do it. So we're, we're getting a little background on Max. Yeah. And uh, we're talking about you being from New York, but living in LA now. Yeah, yeah. Continue. Yeah. I, um, oh, I'm from New York. I uh, used to live in LA. I lived in LA for like 10 years. And then I moved back to New York about uh, five years ago now because um, I'd spent 10 years away from my family and um, I discovered... Uh, maybe seven years ago now that my mom um, got sick, basically. And that's really motivated a lot of my work. But seven years ago, I moved back from LA to New York um, to be closer to my mom and my brothers and to kind of get a handle on what was going on with her health. Um, even though, I mean, it was a little bit of a sacrifice for me because I had spent most of my 20s in LA. My, you know, my social life is out there. It's a much healthier city. Um, I always felt pulled to the West Coast, even as a kid growing up in New York. And now I'm back in New York predominantly, but I'm spending more and more time in LA. So hopefully trying to make it, you know, make it back out there. And let's, let's take a deeper dive into your mom's health and, yeah. and how you really got started on this. Yeah. I mean, I've been sort of a health and fitness nerd my whole life, but I never really had any professional aspiration um, in that field. I mean, I, I started college pre-med, but I ended up double majoring in film and psychology. Uh, once I realized that I had a love for storytelling and creativity, I've always been kind of a music junkie. Also, I've been a, you know, cinemaphile on top of my, my love for health and nutrition. Um, you know, I was like a really early adopter in high school. I remember, um, being really into the ketogenic diet. I read a book, uh, this was like 1997, um, by Lyle McDonald, all about the ketogenic diet, which is like a tome to ketosis, like no, you know, graphs or pictures or anything like that. It was like printed in soft cover, just this really uh, reference dense book. And then my senior thesis in high school, I wrote on creatine. So I've been into this, like I've been in this game for a really long time um, privately. But then, uh, yeah, about seven years ago, I was leaving my job. Um, I, my first job out of college, I uh, began working for a TV network that Al Gore co-founded and it was called Current TV. So I was there sort of as a journalist. Um, I got to, you know, work with some of the best storytellers, content creators in the world. Um, and then I left the network to figure out where I was going to go with my career. I started spending more and more time in New York City. And in that sort of window where I was at once, you know, at this really pivotal, critical point in my career, um, trying to, you know, really kind of like get a handle on how, you know, how I was going to transition this amazing job that I had for five years into something that was going to be like a more sustainable uh, career. I, um, began spending more and more time around my mom and, you know, she was 58 at the time. She was blonde, you know, like, like just, she was just a mom. And me and my brothers noticed that it had seemed suddenly as if talking to her, we were talking to a much older person. It was almost as if she, uh, had a brain transplant in a way. Um, her, her brain's processing speed had 
greatly downshifted and she also had a change to her gait, which is the way a person walks. She started to, her, her stride took on more of a shuffle um, appearance. And, you know, I had no prior family history of dementia. I didn't know anything about dementia. I didn't know anything about Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, any of the, any of these topics that now I would say I, you know, I'm an expert in. Um, back then I was just a kid trying to figure out what was wrong with his mom. And it led to me going around the country to, you know, the top neurology departments that we have. Um, and, uh, ultimately I found myself in, uh, Ohio at the Cleveland clinic, which is, uh, you know, one of our top medical institutions, right? It's like a cathedral to Western medicine almost. And it was there for the first time that my mom was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease. And that was probably one of the worst weeks of my life. I mean, I, you know, it almost seemed as if, uh, the world was caving in on me. I mean, certainly I was afraid for my mom. You know, I didn't know if she was going to die, um, what this really meant for her in terms of her health. When I started Googling the drugs that she was prescribed, I, you know, I mean, that made, made it even worse because the drugs have no disease modifying ability. They're basically just what I've come to call biochemical band-aids. At um, best. Yeah. At best, right? Um, and then at the same time, I was like, shit, I, you know, I'm like 28 also. Like, I can't really go back to Hollywood now at this point and uh, pursue what I guess at the time was a, a relatively fun career. But, you know, I found it really difficult to focus on anything but what was going on um, with my mom. And at a, at a certain point, after that initial trauma subsided, I uh, I basically kind of had this this you know, lifelong passion for health and nutrition. And I just had a hunch that there had to be something in terms of diet and lifestyle that might be able to help my mom. So immediately I went to PubMed and I started just searching for stuff. And at first it was incredibly overwhelming. Um, but I think, uh, in the long run, it, um, you know, it was one of the strongest calls to action that I've ever had in my whole life. And despite, you know, Obviously, it began with my mom, and then at a certain point, it sort of branched out. You know, I became very interested in the notion of prevention because, you know, as much as I would love to have a cure for my mom, um, it became abundantly clear to me that these are like any chronic disease; uh, these don't begin overnight. Um, and when talking about Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia, you know, this begins in the brain thirty to forty years before the first symptom. So it became. Um, really uh clear to me that this needed to be something that um younger people needed to be talking about and and just personally now that i had this new risk factor for the disease that i had to start being mindful about my choices you know as it pertained to my brain health i mean i'm you know like i think you're prototypical millennial in that to me intellectual capital is everything you know i'm i create music i'm a creative person i'm you know really interested in in the full breadth of you know experiencing the full breadth of what life has to offer and the notion of me one day becoming demented i mean it's just a nightmare scenario so um so i started living the life that i was reading you know could potentially protect me against these sorts of diseases and subjectively what i noticed is that you know the the more that i would adhere to this brain healthy diet that i was uncovering the better my brain actually started to work in the here and now. Um, and that was really interesting to me because, you know, I didn't, I mean, I've, I guess I've heard the term neuroplasticity. I'd heard it and it was like this nebulous concept to me. Like you can't look in the mirror and see new brain cells sprouting. Right. So the notion that, um, 
the diet and lifestyle can actually uh, improve the moment-to-moment functioning of your brain, and especially domains like executive function, which you know is probably more important to your success as a person than IQ. Um, it was just really incredible, and it actually created a feedback loop where the more I learned and the more that I started uh, integrating into my own diet and lifestyle, the more reward I got and the more compelled I was to just go further down the down that rabbit hole and then ultimately to start researching what was happening in my head. And so that kind of is what led to me writing Genius Foods, which is um, basically what I consider to be an owner's manual to the to the human brain. Yeah, so. I've, I've taken a deep dive into it. And there's a lot of books that come out and, you know, they they kind of they kind of make some good points. And then there's other parts where you're like, meh, yeah, I guess, you know, but I mean, I'm fucking glued to it. It <laughs> is. And I'm not just pumping you up like I, I promise you, if you're listening to this, you will not be disappointed. It is an absolutely excellent book. The way you tie it together and the fact that you're not dogmatic about the ketogenic diet, which I'm a huge fan of. I mean, when you talk about your own executive function, your own cognitive capabilities, there has been no dietary intervention I've ever done that turned my brain on, like truly being in nutritional ketosis. And so that's for certain one pathway, but also figuring out like when's the right time to have carbs because you're going to fucking, you're human, you're going to eat carbs again, you know, and what's the right carbs? What are the best, what are the best practices for that? Like, Everything you outline in the book, including the breakdown of the superfoods, which is really incredible because there's so much that I didn't know, you know, even about olive oil and some of these things where I was like, oh shit, you know, I was eating, we went out to New York um, with product development to look at some products in New Jersey and my buddy had lived there for 10 years uh, in Soho and Little Italy and different places. And he's like, I want to take you to Little Italy. Let's go get some food. And uh, I, I looked at their olive oil and it was that dark green and it had that spicy flavor. And I was like, this is the shit he's talking about. This is the good olive oil. I love that. This is the whole, the whole gamut right here. And um, it's, it's cool because it, I mean, for me, like uh, being deep into nutrition and supplements and figuring these things out for myself, a lot of, a lot of similarities in our paths. Um, my great grandmother died of Alzheimer's disease. And I remember when I was seven years old, she said, Hey, it's Larry, come here. And I gave her a kiss. And I was like, I'm Kyle. And I looked at my parents, like, why is she calling me Larry? And she said, Larry's her son. You look like him when he was a boy. And I was like, <clears throat> I mean, that just fucked my head up. I was seven years old. Like, how could she think I'm her son, who's my great uncle, like way older than me, you yeah. know? And um, Parkinson's ran on that side of the family as well. You know, they talk about being a prisoner in your own body, like mm. literally not being able to stop shaking. You have no control over anything. Like you're just locked inside the cage of this meat wagon Duh. with zero control. It's like, well, both of those options sound pretty fucked. Yeah. You know? And um, you know, I think what started it for me was diving into Dr. David Perlmutter's work, you know, where they really first started calling these diseases type three diabetes. And it just so happens on my mom's side of the family, there's a lot of type two diabetics. So mm. I don't do well with carbohydrates on either side of the family. And um, that's not for everybody, but there are so many takeaways from this book, no matter what you're eating on how you can improve your diet and your cognitive function through food, which is so critical. Yeah, so critical. I mean, if you have type two diabetes, your risk for developing uh, Alzheimer's disease increases anywhere between two and fourfold. So it's a dramatic uh, increased risk. And you know, just to touch on Parkinson's disease, my mom has uh, Parkinsonian symptoms. And by the time you show your first Parkinson's disease symptom, half of the dopaminergic neurons involved in movement in the substantia nigra region of the brain, which is what the part of the brain affected by Parkinson's disease, are already dead. 
So it becomes, I mean, to me, abundantly clear that, yeah, this is, I mean, we don't know everything about, I mean, we certainly don't know everything about Alzheimer's disease progression, which is the most common neurodegenerative disease uh, prevention, I should say. And we definitely don't know, you know, everything. We're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of knowing how to prevent Parkinson's disease. But, um, you know, there is really good and interesting research now on the role of gut health in Parkinson's disease uh, etiology, which to me is like really, really interesting um, in light of the gut brain axis and the, and the interrelationship between the two. But yeah, it's, uh, man, they're, I mean, they're horrible diseases, you know, um, I've been in my mom's house and I've found her purse in the fridge, you know, it's, uh, really heartbreaking and it's not something that I would wish for, for even my worst enemy, you know, I mean, I don't have many enemies, thankfully, but, um, but they're, they're terrible diseases. And, you know, they say that when you lose somebody to Alzheimer's disease, you lose them twice because they they forget who you are. You know, they basically, um, their memory goes, obviously, um, but then nobody's ever survived Parkinson's disease. It kills them ultimately. So, yeah, I uh, I wrote the book really to be, um, you know, not just uh, eat more blueberries, eat more salmon, you know, things like that. There's a number of brain books uh, on the market, but for me, I think what it became really important to, first of all, to under, you know, I'm not like a, an academic. So for me, I really wanted to, to learn what the hell was going on in our, in our heads in relationship to our food as best as I could. And I really wanted to get down to like the most granular possible level. Um, and so for me, you know, learning these concepts from the ground up really helped me, I think, paint a picture in the book that you're not going to get from, from, other books. It's not just a rehashing of the same old material. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's like people have been told for decades that smoking cigarettes is not good for you. Right. But it wasn't until they started putting like the diseased lung photos on the packages of cigarettes that people really started to stop. Right. Like that had actually made an impact. And so for me, I thought that the best way to actually uh, modify the behavior of my readers is to really illustrate how their choices are affecting their brain health. So, I mean, it goes, it, you know, I mean, it ranges from, I talk a lot about the value of omega-3s, which I'm sure you talk about on the show, but, um, you know, many people know that omega-3s are, are good for the brain, but why are they good for the brain? I wanted to know. So for example, you know, there's this, this, uh, property that a healthy and, and highly functioning brain cell, uh, needs to have. It's the property of membrane fluidity. So basically your brain cells, the way they interact with the outside world is through receptors that are allowed to surface basically, um, so that they can hear the messages contained by neurotransmitters. And so you want neuronal membrane fluidity. What you don't want is membrane rigidity, which basically uh, impairs the ability of these receptors to surface, sort of like a buoy, like bobbing up to the surface of the ocean, right? Um, when membranes behave more fluidly, then these the ears of the, neuro, of the neurons, these uh, neurotransmitter receptors, are able to more effectively bob up to the surface, and that can help, you know, influence... Uh, your memory, your executive function, your mood, things like that, your cognition. Um, and so research shows that when we eat more uh, omega-3s, actually our membranes behave more fluidly. When we consume more omega-6s, which we're doing, you know, we're over-consuming omega-6s obviously today um, by an order of magnitude, those neuronal membranes actually act more rigidly you know, potentially impairing the way that our, the way that our brains work. That's what, when people throw on inflammation, they think of like joint pain, but we don't realize yeah. like systemic inflammation is literally making these parts of our brain stiffer. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, inflammation totally. 
oxidative stress, things like that. I mean, trans fats, think about trans fats. Trans fats actually make your brain cell membranes like, uh, like when a corpse stiffens, like rigor mortis, they're like the worst things for, uh, you know, our brain cell membranes. And actually one of the main reasons why I think trans fat consumption has been associated with reduced memory function in young, healthy people. So, I mean, it's those kinds of things that I think today, particularly when we're seeing an, uh, you know, ever increasing diagnosis of ADD and ADHD, that knowing how to best uh, support healthy neurotransmitter function becomes super important. Um, and I actually s struggled all throughout my schooling with, uh, you know, impaired attentional control, focus, distraction, things like that. Um, it's one of the reasons why, I don't know if you can relate to this, but, you know, my teachers always loved me because I always was super curious. I would always ask lots of questions, but my grades always sucked. I always struggled to get good grades. And that's actually one of the reasons why, you know, as I mentioned, despite always having a passion for health, I didn't ultimately go into medicine because I just didn't think that I'd be able to keep up to the, you know, with the rigors of, of, um, studying medicine. I just like my brain never, I was never able to get my schoolwork in on time, things like that. So, so, you know, those are all aspects of executive function. And I, since I started eating, you know, more omega threes, fewer omega sixes, um, less unhealthy oils like canola oil, grapeseed oil, soybean oil, things like Corn that. Oil. <laughs> the worst. Yeah. <laughs> the worst grapeseed oil that my executive function improved. And honestly, I mean, I attribute to having written the book, like to the fact that, you know, my brain wor was working in a way that was like, okay, Max, time to focus, you know? Yeah. When you're talking about having pasta and things like that for, yeah. for dinner, I was like, that's, yeah, that's me. And I'm gluten intolerant, wow. you know? So it's, it's, it's funny to look back on that similar story in school. Did pretty well on tests so I could get away with a lot. My teachers didn't like me because uh, I was kind of a class clown and an <laughs> asshole, but um. Yeah, you know, I mean, how many rounds of antibiotics I'd have a year, probably five or six every year for over a decade, mm. in addition to gluten at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know? I mean, just just copious amounts of pasta and, oh and cereals and the, the exact wrong food that I could have in my diet. And um, it's it's one thing that you illustrate in the book, which I love, and, and Perlmutter talks about this in Grain Brain and Brain Maker. 80 to 90% of our neurotransmitters are made in our gut. People think about the cheat meal as, you know, a weight loss issue. Like, oh, I lost 20 pounds. I'm going to eat this shitty food and I might gain five of it back, but that's okay. And they're not thinking about the fact that that's going to make them fall flat on their face mentally and cognitively, that they're going to be an emotional wreck, that they're going to sleep like shit, that they're going to recover poorly, joint pain's going to come back, the fucking cascade in all directions of bad food choices. And it's not to say that I don't cheat, but as I've mentioned here a hundred times, like cheat clean, like yeah. make your own fucking pizza, do, do whatever it takes so you can have the food that you want, but it's not going to hurt you as bad as ordering Domino's or going to fucking McDonald's. Oh know? yeah. Well, that's a problem that I have with the, if it fits your macros movement. Bullshit. Yeah. Yes. It's bullshit. God, it's, it's the bullshit. worst. It's the worst. Um, yeah. People, I mean, I get commenters all the time telling me that, you know, like with the shrug emoji, like I've eaten a Big Mac every day, but I've been able to lose weight because I'm, you know, eating fewer calories. I'm like, well, that doesn't mean that the Big Mac is good for you. Yeah. It doesn't make, mean you're yeah. fucking healthy. Yeah. Exactly. You have no idea what that's doing to your insides exactly. and what the long-term consequences of that are. Exactly. You know, every time you're ordering the French fries, spiking insulin, you're also getting in the trans fats. Like 
Yes. Talk to me in 20 years, pal. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> yeah. You can look great in a bathing suit and still be hyperinsulinemic. You can be metabolically obese on the inside. I mean, that's an actual medical term, normal weight, metabolically obese. So just because you're thin, you might have abs. Like that does not mean that you're healthy. Right, well, I'm going to start throwing that at people as a slight jab. You yeah. Know? Like, like instead of skinny fat, throw me that yeah. term one you're more time. You're normal weight, metabolically obese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the new shit. It's the new shit. <laughs> that's the new shit. I'll be tossing that out at Paleo FX this weekend. Do it. <laughs> Bro, you're looking pretty normal weight, metabolically obese <laughs> by eating that. that yeah. Um, Thankfully, they're churro. serving nothing but the best bone broths and and fucking keto shakes and, and uh, seaweed snacks and jerkies, grass-fed everything, so... I'm excited. I mean, just, you know, touching on insulin, it's important to know that, you know, hyperinsulinemia can precede uh, chronically elevated blood sugar by a decade. So you can have chronically elevated insulin, which is the body's chief growth hormone in your body elevated by, you know, for a decade before you become insulin resistant to the point where your blood sugar begins to be measurably higher chronically, um, which is obviously what type 2 diabetes is and even prediabetes. And 40% of Alzheimer's cases might be owed to chronically elevated insulin. So when I'm making, you know, my choices at every meal, I'm trying to keep tight reins uh, on my body's production of insulin. And even in my cheat meals, I'm trying to have a cheat meal, you know, maybe after a workout. After a workout, you've got the benefit of what's called insulin-independent glucose uptake. So just having a workout, I mean, causes your muscles to become like a sponge for glucose. I talk about this in the book. Like, I don't think that carbs are bad. Insulin is certainly not a bad hormone. If it was a bad hormone, it wouldn't be the most or one of the most conserved hormones in the animal kingdom, right? I mean, it's something that basically we wouldn't be here without insulin. It's, a, it's the body's chief fat storage hormone. Um, but today we're more sedentary than ever before. We're eating about 300 grams of carbohydrates every single day. Most at of least, us on average. At yeah. least. At least. And so- you know, after a workout, like have your, have your carbs, you know, I, for example, I have a, I love to do, um, you know, I have like a fairly, uh, traditional, like split in the gym. I love to lift weights, but my brother does jujitsu and we talk about like carb tolerances and things like that. If you're doing like super high intensity exercise regularly, it, you know, it might benefit you to have a little bit more carbohydrates. Yeah. And so and that's something certainly I've noticed. I didn't get into the ketogenic diet until I retired from fighting. I don't think fighters should do that unless it's in between fight camps. But new, thanks to guys like Louis Villasenor, the keto gains guy, you know, with with different different ways to titrate carbohydrates with timing, you know, targeted keto, where you might have some uh, fermented beet extract and things like that along intra workout. I think that can be managed, so you can still get the glycolytic benefits. That's if you're really trying to keep a tight rein on ketone production. But if you're just everyday people trying to lose weight and get the best, you know, maximize gains, that's something that we, you know, Ben Greenfield's been big on, carbohydrate backloading. Uh, we obviously talk about that in Own the Day, Own Your Life, Aubrey Marcus's new book. And yeah, you have a huge desire. The muscles are screaming for glycogen. The liver wants it so yeah. it can dole out whatever glucose needs to go to the brain at night while you sleep and recover. I mean, the fact that you set the tone for that, at the very least, you know, those carbohydrates are going to go where you want them to and not turn into fat on your body, yeah. let alone create inflammation and other issues. Yeah, exactly. Because you got that, that you know, insulin independent. So like, even if you are in ketosis and you're fat adapted, you know, having carbohydrates in that, say you're talking about hundred grams of carbohydrates, having hundred grams of carbohydrates after a workout is, uh, you're going to, your pancreas is going to secrete less insulin in that post-workout window because your muscles literally pull sugar from the blood. Whereas, you know, because the thing is the body is really good. The body can only look backwards, right? The body has no idea what you're going to do. So 
after a workout, your body knows that you just, you know, expel, you know, used all of the uh, sugar stored in your muscles because you had that high intensity workout. So you hit that glycogen threshold where you're, or that glycolysis, um, you know, threshold where you're burning through the stored sugar. And then it's going to shuttle that, that glucose back into the muscle where it can hang out and wait until your, until your next workout. Um, if you're just eating those carbs sitting at your desk, uh, your body has no idea that you're going to work out after work, you know? So it becomes completely pointless. Like that sugar is going to go, you probably to one place, your waistline, you know, whereas after a workout, your body knows that you just had that, that exercise, you've got that, you know, and even a little bit of insulin in the post-workout window, it's an anabolic stimulus, right? It's going to help you grow mass. Yeah. Bodybuilders are huge into that. Get yeah. it in the 30 to 60 minute w anabolic window, but they're doing stuff. I remember this with creatine back in the day, and I'm sure you remember like the 75 grams of dextrose with oh, your 10 geez. grams of creatine, you know, yeah. on purpose to spike insulin, to drive up uptake of the creatine and other nutrients. And that's fine. I mean, if your goal is mass, but I think most of the people listening to this podcast are not trying to be professional bodybuilders. Yeah. And just to put on five pounds of muscle, that shouldn't be the fucking goal either. Like you can get that just from putting in good work and timing things correctly. And then as you gain muscle, you're leaning on at the same time. There's no reason you can't do that. You don't have to have, unless you're Ronnie Coleman, you shouldn't have a 12 week mass cycle of eating everything in the kitchen sink. And then 12 weeks of cutting where you're eating asparagus and chicken breast every yeah. night. Bodybuilders are like, you know, I think the ultimate biohackers, although they're not necessarily healthy, but they're so in tune. They're extremists. Yeah. You know, there's no doubt. And the discipline there, I mean, there's, it's a fucking hard deal. I mean, everybody's, yeah, you just shoot steroids. And look, like, I could take fucking everything under the sun. I'll never look like Arnold, <laughs> let alone one of these new age guys, you know? So they're, they're, they are very disciplined, very scientific about the approach. And, you know, to use, uh, to steal one from Aubrey and Joe Rogan, like they don't feed based on mouth pleasure. You know, and that's something that we do constantly. Yeah. We're constantly looking for mouth pleasure as a reward. And that's because the brain is interlinked with that. It's not just candida or something is calling for the donut. Like either it's through some type of reward system from when we grew up, mommy and daddy got in an argument, we go get a McDonald's ice cream cone, all is better. Or if it's not ingrained in us that way, it's just something we know. Hey, I'm going to eat this thing that is scientifically engineered to taste the way that it does sure. and it's going to fire every fucking neurochemical in my brain that says yes yes this is it because it's making me fat because that's what we're designed to do that's what rob wolf talked about and where to eat like we want that kind of food to fatten up on purpose because we're not designed to have food 365 days a year 24 7 yeah and i was really happy that you touched on the different forms of fasting in your book because that is absolutely critical for everyone to adopt whether you're eating carbs or not it's such an an excellent way for us to have cellular clearing and autophagy and just get the most out of our longevity you know it's something that anyone can adopt talk about that for a minute yeah so intermittent fasting you know there's uh, a few i highlight some of the most well-studied protocols so there's the 16 to 8 which is um you know there's some good human trials on it not i wouldn't say large population long term by any means but um there's there's sort of that protocol or the lean gains protocol, which you know depending on uh, where you've first learned about it. Um, then there's uh, Walter Longo's uh, fasting mimicking diet, which is basically a, a five day consecutive very low calorie um, plan. Which is there's very interesting research there. Or alternate day fasting, which um, was coined by Krista Varade at University of Chicago. So I mean, there's like all these different protocols. Which is the right one for you? Well, it's probably going to require a little bit of self experimentation. What I recommend to people to do is to forget about the the nuances and really to just focus on the fact that 
your body has a national, a national, national, a natural, uh, although probably at the national level, like we've definitely, well, yeah, <laughs> we, um, our bodies, uh, we're diurnal creatures, right? So we want to eat during the day. Um, and we have a, a, an inclination in the morning when we first wake up to burn fat. This is because when you wake up in the morning, your cortisol levels are the highest they're going to be typically throughout the day. Um, we tend to think about cortisol as the stress hormone, but it's actually the body's waking hormone. It's like the hormone that wakes you up actually, um, at the end of, uh, your sleep and cortisol, like insulin is the body's chief anabolic hormone. Cortisol is the body's chief catabolic hormone. So when cortisol is elevated first thing in the morning, it's liberating stored sugar, stored fats. I mean, it's like releasing sugar from the liver, um, things like that. And so, yeah, I don't like to eat during that window because that's like the perfect fat burning window. And especially if you, what I think is really interesting, if you eat breakfast in its most commonly consumed form in the United States, which is predominantly carbohydrate, grain-based crap, right? You're basically causing insulin to become elevated while cortisol is elevated. And think about the fact that, first of all, that makes no sense from an evolutionary perspective because you're having two... Uh, diametrically opposed stimuli occurring at the same time. You've got the body's chief anabolic hormone, which is there to cause storage and growth. And you've got the chief, the body's chief catabolic hormone, which is really there to break things down and use up stored fuels, both elevated at the same time when you eat that morning breakfast, which is typically rich in carbs, right? The problem with that is that insulin acts like a one-way valve on your body's fat cells. So it basically allows calories to flow in, but it doesn't let calories come out. And so You've got in that window in the morning, if you, you know, reach for the bowl of oatmeal or the, you know, the bran muffin, you've got cortisol exerting its catabolic effects on your muscle tissue and on the sugar stored in your liver, but it's not able to do that on your fat tissue because you've got insulin elevated. So basically it's able to redistribute your weight from muscle to fat. So it's exerting its catabolic effect on your muscles, um, but you're not losing any fat because you've got insulin elevated after that, that high carb breakfast. So that's why I tell people don't eat for an hour or two or three after waking up. Um, I don't really obsess over the, uh, you know, I'm not super rigid when it comes to the time that I start eating. And then at the other, you know, on the other end of the day, um, again, we're diurnal. So you want to not eat super late at night. There's really interesting research there that uh, shows that independent of calories, you know, if you're, if you're eating super late at night, it can help, you know, with fat storage. And conversely, by cutting off your consumption of calories earlier in the day at about 2 p.m., which I don't expect most people to do, but you actually increase fat oxidation. Um, Rob Wolf's the only guy that I know that's that's gotten rid of dinner. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I think he's he's balls deep, though. He's a guy that that I could see I could see him or Greenfield doing that. Greenfield's gotten rid of breakfast. He does lunch and dinner. My yeah. wife and I do the same. Although we have brought our window in, uh, we notice it's a bit easier if we cut. You know, if we're done eating at 5 or 6 p.m., it makes it easier to have that first optimized coffee around 9 or 10 a.m. and, uh, you know, eat a good-sized lunch and a big dinner yeah. earlier on. I, I think do that's that. doable for a lot of people to fit in a 16-hour fasting window. Yeah. I mean, today I woke up at 7 at seven a.m. and I ate at 10 a.m. And I had, like, breakfast foods. I had, you know, eggs and avocado and broccoli and things like that. But um, sometimes I'll push it to 2 in the afternoon. It really, you know, it completely depends. I just, I don't, I don't think it's uh, productive to get, like, hung up over the times necessarily i mean follow your your body's own natural you know if you're hungry um and you want to eat eat i think most people eat 
for that mouth pleasure, not even necessarily because they're hungry. They just eat because it's become so ritualized and ingrained in our society. Like the minute noon hits, it's lunchtime, right? So you got to go out and eat that calzone or whatever when maybe you weren't even, you <laughs> I'm know. I'm thinking of Seinfeld right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 I used to eat that kind of shit like yeah. 15 years ago, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did it. I mean, when I was in college at ASU playing football, I was trying to gain weight. So I'd eat and not knowing I was gluten intolerant. Uh, two pizzas at night and a box of Krispy Kreme donuts to top it off. McDonald's three days a week. Wow. I mean, just fucked my body up Man. beyond beyond repair. I'm trying to work hard to repair it now. I mean, you're you're in pretty good shape. Well, so. thank you. From the outside, I'm metabolic. How do you, why do we say that? Normal weight, metabolically obese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I did the Tellier test after uh, Greenfield had the guy on, and uh, 35 years old on the on the outside, 41 years old on the inside. Wow. But we're reversing that. Yeah, you know, we're talking we to Greenfield about the stem cells and obviously with the diet and everything dialed in. There's no doubt that by the time I'm 41, I'll be younger on the inside than, Dude, I, than I am. I did the telehears test uh, and uh, I was 35 when I did it. I'm 30. Well, I'm still 35, but I you did it like early. You fucking 25. Yeah, well, the, it's it. a work <laughs> this guy is. <laughs> I'm uh, telehears said that I was 27 biologically. Hell yeah. So, there you yeah. go. So you get that going for you. Emotionally probably younger than that you're way younger than i tell am. you what yeah i'm 41 should i act wow. like a 41 year old does that give me street cred to act like i've i've got that much wisdom dude i don't I'm think i'm in my 40s now you are tell no telomere wise oh tell me 36 yeah. you're 36 okay <laughs> yeah. i turned 36 this month actually so nice there you go um, are yeah. you an aries not Gem- that that means Gemini. shit yeah okay. yeah all right i find it cute when people ask that like oh hey what oh you're born then oh yeah that Oh, what does that mean? That I should avoid uh, talking to my boss this month and bet on these numbers? Yeah, Not sure. I don't buy it. Um, shit. Yeah. Who was the guy that did that? Was that Dr. Sachin Panda that was talking about that with, with cutting yourself off before the sun goes down? Sachin Panda. I don't know if he's done. He does a lot, a lot of animal research. I'm not sure exactly if he was behind the human study. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's definitely a major, a major uh, researcher in the chronobiology space i think it's going to be a an increasingly important topic as we learn more about it yeah i think that's a big one you know and and certainly the thing too like that people are so averse to fat and it's it's what makes us full yeah you know it's really it's it's like i even when i'm not in ketosis just adding more good fats like avocado and and egg yolk and coconut oil and butter and all these things to the diet that's the only time that i'll stop eating that's mm. the only time where I'll have a plate of food and I'll stop short and box the rest. Mm. Whereas if it's if it's you know a pretty carb heavy meal, I'm finishing that food. Yeah. Even if I'm fucking stuffed, it's oh still going to go all the way down. There's no question. I can't put I can't pump the brakes. Right. You know. But but with fat, you can pump the brakes. Yeah. And it gives you power. You know, it's like the, one of the first things people talk about when they go low carb, high fat, or they even just start adding more good fats to their diet is like they have a little bit of power they don't need snacks every two hours they don't they're not a slave to food yeah where you really just feel called to eat every two to three hours and you're hangry if you don't yeah there's also i mean there's good evidence to say you know to show that protein actually is is probably the most satiating macronutrient there's really there's this really interesting hypothesis called the the protein leverage hypothesis uh, which basically stipulates that we eat in order to meet our protein requirements. Because protein, I mean, really, uh, the body's made of protein, right? So it's a, it's an incredibly important uh, macronutrient. It's probably the hardest to get. 
for the you know majority of our time as hunter gatherers. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that like it's pretty difficult to overconsume protein. I mean, you know, you just at a certain point you don't want to eat anymore. That's why people that are like concerned about eating too much protein, I think, um, you know, it's really uh, as long as you're eating good quality protein dense foods, you know, like which is why I'm an omnivore. I'm not a vegetarian. I think it's like really easy to, uh, you know, to fill yourself up when you're eating things like steak, chicken, stuff like that. Um, I mean, if I'm eating a, if I'm at a steakhouse, I'm leaving that restaurant stuffed. If I'm eating a, a you know, at a place that's more, I don't know, um, less, thai pro restaurant. less protein focused. Yeah. Like a yeah. Thai restaurant, like you end up being hungry an hour later. Yeah. So protein is, uh, I think really important, you know, it provides the, the, you know, building blocks for our body's neurotransmitters, protein, you know, I mean, we're made of protein essentially. And especially if you're doing high intensity exercise, lifting weights, resistance training, things like that, like you need that protein. One of the things that pairs with protein that's excellent is cholesterol. Break mm -hmm. that down for people, because that's something that, that another one like fat that people have been averse to in the past, thanks to <laughs> yeah cool. Ansel keys and different turd sandwiches that have come along and shifted the way oh we eat throughout God. society yeah cholesterol oh my god it's it's i mean without cholesterol we die right so it's kind of ridiculous that um it's been so demonized over the past couple of decades for the vast majority of people we now know that eating cholesterol has no bearing on cholesterol circulating in your body um i mean there's always exceptions in biology there are people that are hyper absorbers you know those that have uh what's called familial hypercholesterolemia they might hyperabsorb cholesterol from the gut um so you know i try to really make the effort to to not uh you know claim that there's a one size or uh, imply that there's a one size fits all diet because everybody's different we all have different genders fitness levels things like that genetic backgrounds um but yeah cholesterol is inc an incredibly important nutrient in the body and in the brain every cell in your body uh requires cholesterol uh, to function properly in the brain, it might actually be an antioxidant. Um, does that mean that we need to chase cholesterol as a nutrient? No, because actually your liver creates about four egg yolks worth of cholesterol daily. Uh, and in the brain, your brain synthesizes its own cholesterol as well. It's called de novo cholesterol synthesis. So I think what's more important, what I talk about in the book, um, is keeping your body's uh, cholesterol system healthy. So I think that's the that's the real I think relationship between cholesterol and, and disease, because there's a relationship, um, certainly between cholesterol and disease. It's not a causal one, but, um, you know, our bodies, our livers produce lipoproteins, um, these LDL particles and HDL particles. But, uh, if you allow an LDL particle to sit in circulation for too long, it becomes, it goes from being large and fluffy to small and dense. And this small and dense, um, LDL pattern is associated with disease. And so in the book, I talk about how to basically prevent that transformation and the way to prevent a large fluffy buoyant ldl particle from becoming a small and dense ldl particle is to facilitate uh ldl recycling by the liver so the liver plays hundreds of incredibly important roles in the body ldl recycling is one of those roles it's got ldl receptors on on its surface that basically before too long are there to basically pluck an ldl particle out of circulation where it can then be turned to bile past what have you. The problem is when we overload the liver with eating too many refined carbohydrates, excessive saturated fat, things like that, and especially when those two are combined, which typifies, you know, the your typical uh, processed food, the liver becomes less effective at um, recycling cholesterol. And so that's one of the proposed mechanisms by which uh, 
you know, these particles can shrink and thus become more dangerous um, to you. So I talk all about this in the book. And again, everybody's different, um, but especially for people that are um, have genetic risk for uh, Alzheimer's disease, one of the proposed mechanisms by which the APOE4 allele, which is the most well-defined Alzheimer's risk gene, imposes increased uh, risk both for Alzheimer's disease and cardiovascular disease, it affects the way the liver recycles cholesterol. So for them, and I think people in general, like I don't, uh, I'm not a person in the low carb community that advocates for eating excessive saturated fat. There's no evidence really to warrant that as a recommendation, certainly. And one of the reasons, one of the uh, mechanisms by which saturated fat does raise cholesterol, it raises LDL and HDL. So, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it basically reduces the amount of uh, LDL receptors on the liver. So we want our livers to be as efficient as possible. Um, our livers perform hundreds of roles in the body. Uh, they store sugar, obviously, in the form of glycogen. They recycle cholesterol. They create these uh, LDL particles. Um, they purify our blood. They create endogenous antioxidants and things like that. So we really want to like, they're really important. We really want to like support our liver. And I don't think that eating, um, you know, tons of butter and things like that is really uh, important. On the other hand, animal research and population level research and trials show that extra virgin olive oil, which is predominantly a monounsaturated fat, helps the liver uh, reduce, you know, purge itself of fat that accumulates. Fatty liver is obviously something that uh, we're seeing reach epidemic proportions. Um, I'll toss that in there too. I'll say you got a fatty liver, bro. Yeah, you got a fatty liver, bro. Your liver is looking real fat. Um, that's not a good thing. And uh, and so, yeah, it seems that extra virgin olive oil really um, has a fatty acid ratio that really seems to help li the liver become more efficient. So talk, talk a bit about that. Talk a bit about, because that was really interesting to me. You know, I mean, talk a bit about what differentiates people just go to the store and they're like, oh, it's organic olive oil. I'll get yeah. that one. You know, like, like break down what really good olive oil looks like and what it does for you. Well, I think that organic is probably the best. Um, organic, when it comes to vegetables, there have been studies in the past that have compared conventionally uh, grown produce to organic and they look at the amount of vitamins in the produce and they're like, oh, they're fairly comparable. There's no difference between organic and conventional. But actually, it's now understood that um, some of the most valuable nutrients or compounds rather in these, in these plants are not necessarily the vitamins and the essential nutrients, but polyphenols, which actually um, are able to explain, I think, the antioxidant value of these vegetables um, far uh, more sort of um, completely than just the vitamins that they have. These polyphenols actually stoke our body's own detox pathways. And they're produced as a defense compound in the plant. And so I think that when you hose a plant down with um, antifungals and herbicides and pesticides, you basically take the pressure off of the plant to create these um, defense compounds, essentially, because they're they basically are being defended by the chemicals that they're being sprayed with against you know the threat of predators. So extra virgin olive oil, it's so good for us in part because it's got tons of phenolic compounds that are anti-inflammatory, um, that have been shown to encourage autophagy, things like that. And, uh, and yeah, so I think that, um, and it's been shown, I believe, that, um, poly that uh, plants grown organically have more of these polyphenols in them. Um, and you don't have to deal with glyphosate then and other well, obviously, that's yeah, fucking horrendous yeah, to the yeah. body and the microbiome. Yeah, I mean, you know, I try to stay as like close to the, the evidence as I can, but um, 
you know, I think like when it comes to these kinds of things like pesticides, we don't know the long-term impact of pesticides on humans, right? But what I argue is that, you know, these are these are compound, these are chemicals and compounds that are so tied to commerce, right? That we're never gonna have the kinds of answers that we want. So I think it's important for people to like really kind of like look out for themselves and stack the odds in their own favor. Cause like the food industry doesn't give a shit about your health. Well, there's hundreds you know? of millions of dollars on the line yeah, exactly. for them to look good for them Exa to look like it doesn't hurt you. Exactly. You know, I mean, 100%. how aspartame is fucking allowed into our food supply is beyond me. It's not allowed in Europe. It's not allowed in a lot of countries, exactly. but it's, it's fucking in our chewing gum. It's, it's in all sorts of shit. Uh, I mean, it's everywhere and it, it wreaks havoc on the gut. Totally. Like one of the problems is I think with these food-like substances, right? We we consider them innocent before proven guilty, right? Whereas I think, and this was the case obviously with uh, hydrogenated oils, right? That were like allowed in our food supply. Meanwhile, they're poison essentially. And now thankfully they're banned, but they were innocent until we were able to prove them guilty. And so think about how many countless Americans were consuming them on the daily before we had enough evidence to say, yeah, we got to pull the plug on these hydrogenated fats, right? I think we need to consider modern foods and food constructs as guilty needing to be proven innocent, you know? Like, why are we so willing to give Monsanto and these huge companies the benefit of the doubt? Money. It's money. money. Yeah. That's like, not a conspiracy theory. Yeah, these it's are, just money. These are billion and billion, billion dollar corporations that literally lobby congress to get shit passed through and exactly. people in congress stand to make money from yeah them having their shit in our food supply exactly meanwhile we're like try intermittent fasting try skipping breakfast and people are like they're they're like raising a skeptical eye right yeah as if like we evolved with breakfast for the vast majority of our but yeah, when it comes to things like pesticides we're like oh wait a minute no you know there's like we've need we need the evidence we can beat nature Here's how we're going to do it. Dude. Yeah. God. Well, I mean, you brought up a great point. Something I, I wanted to talk about but forgot was we didn't, if you think about it, the ancestral movement and, you know, there's lots of arguments about what paleo man ate and all that shit, but that has nothing to do with it. What we do know is they didn't have fucking refrigerators. Yeah. So it's quite likely or box cereal. So they didn't wake up first thing in the morning, roll out of bed and, and pour themselves a giant bowl of wheat product with sugar and cover it in, in fat or milk that has no fat in it. You know, like. The, that was for certain that no culture did that yeah and now that's something we do you know so really if we try to map you know you look at things like ten thousand steps like why is that important well we walked around more we moved more we moved constantly and then we took rest we had siesta we had times of uh, a midday break you know nobody's getting that now in the modern world either so i mean there's so many things that we can take and try to piece together we're really as the movement passes and i'm thinking of this because we're you know i'm going to paleo effects you're going to be there um how do we reconstruct what we're fucking missing you know there's so much to that and it gets overlooked as like nah, i'm in the modern world. and look i'm down with science i get the nad vitamin push uh treatments you know iv vitamins shit like that like why can't you just get it in your food well the soil's different now so it, it it's still important to eat organic it's still important to eat a wide variety of plants and vegetables and things like that and the best highest grade meat that you can afford and and really just dial that in but at the same time like yeah man it's not the same we don't have the the variety we used to yeah and we're not gathering our own food we're not out foraging we're not out on hunts for days at a time we're not forced to fast we choose to fast yeah if we choose 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're right. Our food's different. I mean, a cow is a modern invention, you know, and it's for the most part the land animal that, you know, most most Americans are consuming, uh, you know, the most of along with chicken. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, that's why I think supplementation, things like that, like I'm, uh, I'm all ears to like seeing good research on, on this stuff. I mean, there's even some speculation amongst, uh, researchers that are, you know, because there's more carbon dioxide in the air, you know, plants eat carbon dioxide pretty much. So they're growing faster because there's more CO2 in the, in the atmosphere. And as a result, they're storing more starch and less minerals. On top of the fact that, you know, monoculture is causing our soils to become depleted, right? So produce is nowhere near what it used to be. And um, I mean, you know, and that's for people that are actually like eating vegetables. Most people today are consuming most of their calories from just three plants, wheat, corn, and rice. So, uh, you know, it's no secret that Americans are, well, I call, I call uh, you know, our current state of affairs where overfed but undernourished. You know, because mm-hmm. obesity is reaching all-time highs. Type 2 diabetes, you know, one in two adults are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. And yet the vast majority of people are deficient in at least one essential nutrient. So, yeah, it, it's all about, I think, eating well, doing what you can to get back to the kind of diet that we consumed, you know, in the time in which our brains evolved. And that's what it's all, what it's all about. And it's going to take a little bit more work, but thankfully we live in a time where you know, if you don't have access to grass-fed beef, there are services now that'll ship it to your front door. You know, if you don't have access to, I mean, Amazon obviously is like, you know, doing well in terms of, you know, making uh, healthier foods accessible. But, um, but yeah, I think it's really about uh, just getting the information out there. And, you know, people like you, people like me, like, I think we're all part of this, this movement really helping usher humanity into some, you know, I think, greater vision of what it means to truly be healthy in 2018 and beyond so hell yeah brother yeah this has been we can we can we can cut it there man we hit our hour (laughs) you've been fucking excellent where can people find you on social media and online with uh genius foods is available on amazon and every major retail book center correct yeah definitely pick up genius foods wherever you buy books um it's available and uh find me on social media i'm pretty big on instagram you know i'm I'm super active there. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. And then people can go to my website, maxlugavir.com, join my mailing list. Um, but yeah, I'm super accessible and available. So come say hi. Awesome, brother. We'll throw up the links to his social media in the show notes for people to click and say what's up. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for joining us, brother. Thank you, man. Thank you guys for listening to the On It Podcast with Max Lugavere. Please check out his book, Genius Foods. It is absolutely incredible. As I said in the intro, it's just an amazing book. Um, there's, it's not too often that I read a book on diet where I'm completely blown away. And I think Max does an amazing job of breaking down all the foods that we should eat to optimize our brain. Thanks for listening.